You may have heard last week's big story about the Speaker of the Ohio House of Representatives being arrested for alleged involvement in a criminal racketeering conspiracy in connection with the bailout of Ohio nuclear reactors. And you may still be wondering how and why in the world this happened and how bad it might be. So when a genuine expert on the case tells you... The states have the right to require disclosures and require visibility and campaign finance reportage of money that's funneled through dark vehicles like Generation Now, but they don't. And why don't they? Because their state legislators are unwilling to do that sort of thing because of the politics and the money, the enormous amounts of money coursing their way through the electoral system. This is a big illustration of how one large corporation was able to shovel unimaginable amounts of cash through one point in the General Assembly and take over the General Assembly. This is robber barons on steroids in the 21st century. And that is just the start. So when you learn exactly how far the nuclear industry will go to manipulate state governments into compliance with their worst possible ideas for existing nuclear reactors and highly radioactive waste, you can't miss the fact that they are strapping us into a terrible nuclear seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, an in-depth look at what is coming to be known as Nukegate. Nukegate in Ohio, with side trips to Illinois and Pennsylvania. And we get it all from environmental and trial attorney Terry Lodge, who has been directly involved with these cases and has a ton of information to share that you're not likely to find elsewhere. We will also have Nuclear news from around the world, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, and more honest nuclear information than anyone in Portland has the bandwidth to even consider this week. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, July 28, 2020, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. We'll hear more about Ohio's Nukegate scandal in today's interview. The two most recent developments, Ohio Governor Mike DeWine has called for a repeal of House Bill 6, a landmark bill to bail out nuclear plants in that state that is at the center of this controversy, and stock prices of the company involved, First Energy, with its subsidiary Energy Harbor, have fallen sharply following reports of the investigation involving the nuclear bailouts. 
more nuclear malfeasance coming due? A former executive vice president of Scana Energy pleaded guilty in federal court last Thursday, July 23rd, to conspiracy to commit mail and wire fraud. The charges stem from over $10 billion spent on two new nuclear reactors at VC Summer in South Carolina that have since been abandoned, but not before executives knew that the project was doomed and concealed critical information from regulators and the public while continuing to raise rates and rack up additional debt. And at the Hanford Nuclear Sacrifice Zone in southeast Washington state, according to an audit of small business contracting at the Hanford Nuclear Reservation, the federal government was overcharged by as much as $63 million, and small businesses were deprived of the chance to earn money at Hanford. DOE is considering reducing incentive pay for Mission Support Alliance and also CH2M Hill Plateau Remediation Company two of the contractors implicated in the case. But don't get comfortable with nuclear karma yet because the news is not all good. Suppressed Nuclear Regulatory Commission regulations regarding nuclear emergency plans during COVID-19 reveal that hospital patients and residents of nursing homes within 10 miles of a nuclear power plant might not be evacuated during a major accident that occurs during a viral pandemic unless radiation exposures reach levels 55-0 times higher than levels considered to initiate evacuation. At that level of exposure, in excess of 100 rem of radiation, people would start experiencing radiation poisoning. Oh, they're sick and old anyway, just let them die, seems to be the thinking. And NASA is trying to have the entire contaminated Santa Susana Field Laboratory outside of Los Angeles designated a cultural district, an effort cleanup activists allege is an attempt by the agency to get out of remediating its portion of the site. A partial nuclear meltdown happened there in 1959, and there was other chemical and radioactive contamination over the years as well. In Korea, in advance of the Tokyo Summer Olympic Games scheduled for 2021, a professor at Chungshin Women's University unveiled a video in English warning that the radiation risk still remains high in Japan in the wake of radioactive materials released in the Fukushima triple meltdown of 2011. In addition, research has revealed that plutonium fragments may have spread more than 200 kilometers, about 130 miles, from the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear triple meltdowns in 2011. The report states that plutonium poisoning in food items remains a threat, which leads us to... Nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, none that's out of week. A peach full of sugar helps the radiation go down. At least that's what a farmer in Fukushima Prefecture is hoping. That's because fifth-generation peach farmer Koji Furuyama has been striving to decontaminate the region's reputation by growing the world's sweetest peaches. Mm-mm-mm. He's also getting big publicity about it, which means that he's probably a favorite of the 2021 Olympic Committee. But to quote Nuclear Hot Seat's French friend and journalist Hervé Courtois, You have to be either a masochist or suicidal to play Russian roulette by eating those Fukushima prefectures. Agreed, Hervé. 
it was a sweet piece of propaganda that got out into the world. And that's why, Koji Furiyama and whoever wrote this article, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of week. Here's this week's featured interview. Fasten your seatbelts, because this is going to be quite the ride. Terry Lodge is an Ohio trial lawyer living in Toledo who has represented many clients in civil rights, civil liberties, and environmental cases. An advocate for the public interest in energy policy issues, he has litigated nuclear power safety and environmental issues for over 40 years. Lodge has also represented opponents of nuclear weapons and mountaintop removal mining. This man knows where the metaphoric bodies are buried and here, he proceeds to dig up a whole bunch of them. Note that when he refers to VLLW, he's referring to the term very low-level radioactive waste. I spoke with Terry Lodge on Saturday, July 25th, 2020. Terry Lodge, always great to have you here with us on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you, Libby. Same to you. Terry, there are so many examples of nuclear malfeasance hitting the fan at the same time that I almost don't know where to start. But you're in Ohio. So let's go to the most visible example. Last week, Ohio House Speaker Larry Householder was charged with conspiracy to commit racketeering in connection to the nuclear bailout bill that Householder shepherded through the state legislature last year. Give us the background on this case and how it has been playing out. It's a major and profoundly troubling scandal. Among other things, it illustrates the terrible flaws and defects of the Citizens United decision of 2010, which was the U.S. Supreme Court case, where the court decided that basically nonprofit dark money funnels have free speech rights too, because that's exactly what has happened here with the $61 million scandal that is going to ultimately turn into a massive uh, racketeer influence corrupt organization RICO indictments. Essentially what happened was, is yes, in 2019, Larry Householder rammed through with a lot of political muscle, uh, funded apparently, allegedly, by First Energy Corporation, the bailout of two coal burners and two nuclear power plants. Davis Bessie and Perry are Ohio nuclear power plants uh, that have been operating for about 42 years and 35 years, respectively. There's also a, a very large coal burning plant in southeastern Ohio and another coal burning plant, ironically enough, in southeastern Indiana, my hometown, Madison, Indiana, that is owned by a consortium in which First Energy is very prominent. So. Nuclear power has been losing ground terribly to fracked gas, means of electric generation, as well as big wind and uh, incrementally solar and industrial conservation. Even old nuclear that is presumably uh, paid for, if you will, amortized, is an extremely expensive proposition and has great problems competing with new wind and new solar and, as I say, fracked gas turbines for generation of electricity. So what happened was, is that since approximately 2013 or 14, First Energy Corporation, which operates in nine states, and actually I think owns about five or six nuclear power plants, including Three Mile Island Unit 2, 
<laughs> uh, anyway, First Energy has been lobbying increasingly visibly in several state legislatures, Pennsylvania and Ohio being at least two of them, and they found an evil partner. Larry Householder was a, a big player about a dozen years ago in the state legislature. He term limited out, and after a certain appropriate period, you can be elected again to the Ohio General Assembly. So his plan apparently, and, and a lot of this is not even a secret. A lot of this was very visible because of the terrible battle around what became known as House Bill 6, which was the 2019 law that was uh, ramrodded through the General Assembly. In any event, Householder decided that he, he basically, from what court documents suggest, but also contemporary news reportage in 2018 and 2019, basically pitched a plan to somebody ultimately first energy. The idea was, if you will back a slate of Republican candidates for the House in Ohio that are pledged to make him the speaker, he would honcho through a bailout bill. The thing is, this was a major turbulence within the Ohio Republican Party. As you know, probably nationally, Trump has created a lot of schisms between sort of the neocon corporatist Republicans, sort of the old line types. And in Ohio, that was very much personified by Governor John Kasich and the Tea Party wing. The Trump wing is uh, AKA sort of the Tea Party wing. So Householder, who decided to become more identified with Trump politically, pitched this idea in 2017, I believe, and basically funds, provides campaign donations to 15 Trump wing Republicans that are running against more conventional uh, old line Republicans, and they win. Basically, he backs 15 in the primary, and then the same 15 plus six more, I believe, in the general election of 2018. So he gets elected, selected by 26 Republicans and 26 Democrats as the Speaker of the House, and sets about the passage of House Bill 6. House Bill 6 provides approximately a $1.3 to $1.5 billion subsidy over a six-year period beginning in 2021 to First Energy for the care and feeding of these four, these well, the two nuclear power plants and the two coal burners, that basically they would be kept online even if unprofitable, even if the economics, which, which in most, I think in all of four of their cases, have ceased to be profitable. At the same time, First Energy was going through bankruptcy in 2017-2018, and they created an entirely new corporation that owns these losers, these four losing power plants. First Energy has re-emerged from bankruptcy under the name of Energy Harbor, and we popularly in Ohio refer to them as Pirate's Cove because of the fact that the really politically major bloodletting around the passage of this bill, it really is astonishing. What I'm referring to right now is stuff that was reported in the mainstream press, and I'm seeing it echoed in the charging affidavit that was filed in federal court against the five defendants. What happened is, by a very narrow margin, and incidentally, I would point out a bipartisan margin in the uh, House, House Bill 6 passed and then went on to the Senate where it passed very easily uh, by comparison. But 
there was considerable opposition manifested not just from environmentalists, not just from consumer organizations, but from large wind organizations, wind and solar, and other corporate interests. I, if I'm remembering correctly, I believe some organizations like Costco and Walmart were also opposed to the bailout. The main thing being that there was a genuine consternation that, that First Energy's rates are simply going to spike in some way, and that this money was actually not needed as a uh, means of rehabilitating First Energy after their bankruptcy. But I'm getting a little far afield. So a private corporation-funded uh, commercial petition signing campaign for a referendum starts after the bill's passed. The bill was passed just about exactly a year ago, toward the end of July 2019. And this referendum campaign starts, and it runs into some technical wording problems at the Secretary of State level, and they only have 90 days to get approximately 400,000 signatures to put on the ballot. So they try to hire commercial petition gatherers, and things like incredibly scary tactics start happening. People who are petitioning, are circulating petitions in public places on sidewalks in broad daylight, at street festivals or whatnot, get surrounded by thugs. They get surrounded by people who actually try to deter bystanders, you know, just people at a neighborhood festival, for instance. Petition uh, circulators are trying to walk up to them and just say, do you want to sign a petition to keep your rates down or whatever? And there would be people who would physically interpose themselves between members of the public and the petition signers. There was one instance where two or three people physically attacked one of the petition gatherers who basically said, leave me alone or I'll call the cops or something to that effect. And it turns into a fist fight in broad daylight with witnesses in a public place. And this is stuff, again, that was reported. A number of the petition signers began to tell the media that they were getting calls from people who wouldn't clearly identify themselves offering money and a plane ticket to leave Ohio and stop circulating petition signatures. And in fact, what apparently may have blown this open was a uh, fairly well-placed Republican political lobbyist who was working with the anti-House Bill 6 campaign, the referendum campaign, gets a call from an old buddy who turns out to have, among other things, been, a, I think, a campaign manager for Governor Kasich in his last run for governor. Anyway, this guy is now identified with the householder forces and offers the lobbyist, allegedly, 15000 bucks to quit the campaign. That lobbyist apparently went to the FBI and wore a wire, and things began to take on a very serious edge at that point. That was spring 2019. It gave a great deal of momentum to the FBI investigation. So uh, among other revelations in the 81-page affidavit that the FBI filed, this is not an indictment, but it will turn into one. But among other things, it appears that hundreds of thousands of dollars were paid to 15 different commercial petition signature gathering firms to keep them out of Ohio by a front, a 501c4 organization, a dark money organization that was set up by Householder. And Householder and an aide wrote checks on the account and, and basically paid these firms to stay out of Ohio, you know, in other words, destroying the, uh, certainly muddying the market of petition signers. During the referendum petition gathering phase, 
there were rumors, some dark money force, let's say, say started circulating uh, postcards to all households in the state, all registered voters in the state, that the Chinese were behind the referendum campaign. There were many, many dirty tricks. The referendum did not get the necessary, you need about 225 or 30,000 signatures of registered voters. You need to gather, however, about 400,000 in order to percentage-wise have enough. They fell far short of that, probably 120,000 signatures short. But they had been delayed so many times right. along the right. way when they yeah. tried to move it yeah. forward. Instead of 90 days, uh, the delays that were caused by the Attorney General and the Secretary of State effectively cut out about uh, 38 days, I think, something like that. So they actually had 52 days to gather. And Householder was very much involved in that. And effectively, what did that do to the campaign to not pass this bill or not enact it? The bill had been enacted. And this is a referendum to put up to a public vote, the question of whether or not the law should be allowed to stand. So when it failed, didn't have enough signatures to get on the ballot, then there's no vote. So the law is the law. I want to go back a little bit. Another thing that emerges when you read the charging affidavit is it's astonishing. Almost $61 million was channeled through two different vehicles, but one of them, a 501c4 called Generation Now, which was uh, exclusively under householders' control. But I mean, it, it's really 61 million bucks is kind of like a lot of money. And, and when <laughs> you, you think? Read, yeah, and when you read the affidavit, it's, it, you know, it's you know, on such and such a date, $750,000 was electronically uh, deposited into the account. And nothing was done with that money for 45 days and then such and such. And then it'll say, you know, on another date, you know, 5.7 million or some other astonishing sums of money just deposited in a 501c4 account. It was thus put at householders' exclusive disposal and use. So I'm having problems, and a lot of people are having problems understanding how the numbers work out because apparently the lion's share of this money went, among other things, to, of course, defeat the referendum drive, but also a lot of it went to the approximately 20 candidates for the House of Representatives. And if you have uh, 150, 200,000 bucks as a war chest, you're in pretty good stead. So I want to know what happened. There are either an awful lot of people who are lying and not reporting, you know, a million bucks or a million and a half bucks that were running for House, the state House of Representatives, or something. Householders known, alleged to have essentially converted about $400,000 to his own use. <laughs> his, his, the, are, we, are we talking his own personal use yes, here as yes, opposed to on his campaign? His, yeah, his uh, fee, I think, for managing all this. And it's funny, the affidavit says it went to like retire or resolve a $100,000 mortgage on a house in Florida and to pay off his credit cards. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> why am I laughing? So there are many, many questions that are unanswered. There is a promise by the U.S. District Attorney in Columbus when he had the press conference last week. He said, this is going to go on for a long time. We're going to be very busy. The FBI and members of my staff are going to be very busy because this is an open investigation. And actually, they filed the criminal affidavit in order to legally 
expand their reach. They now have subpoena power to get documents from what is called Company A, which as the U.S. attorney said last week at the press conference, everybody in this room knows who Company A is, but are, they are not a charged party yet, and therefore he was talking about First Energy, Energy Harbor, pardon me, Pirate's Cove. So there are many, many unanswered questions that I think are going to be painted in. I am personally interested and concerned, as are many, that this is the Bill Barr Justice Department, and this involves some Trump loyalists, and it ties into a very interesting point that's going on in Ohio also. There's a drive using some of the very same politicians, including Householder, for Ohio to develop a, I guess I'd call it a research park for small modular nuclear power reactors. It's called the House Bill 104, and it's now before, the, it's been passed through the House in this week or next week is before the state Senate. It may get railroaded through and signed by uh, Governor DeWine. But one of their principal lobbyists is saying on Facebook that the entire prosecution of Larry Householder is predicated on the work of a registered Democrat FBI agent who was a uh, staff member of a state legislator in the state of Michigan and is a supporter of wind power. And I keep thinking, you know, besides the fact that for the FBI to do anything that resembles uh, fighting white-collar crime is astonishing and to be applauded. What also gets me is, dude, Bill Barr is the, you know, the Attorney General of the United States, and I don't think some low-echelon FBI agent is driving this massive conspiracy to put people in jail for laundering 61 million bucks through the Ohio General Assembly. When I was back at Three Mile Island, before it was shut down, when it was the 40th anniversary right. of the accident, disaster, whatever you want to call it, I talked with Eric Epstein of Three Mile Island Alert, and he was talking with me about the Pennsylvania bailout of Exelon and what he was labeling as corruption in that deal. Is this now the template that we can expect any time, in your estimation, that there are nuclear shutdowns, there's a need to deal with the waste, there's a need to deal with whether they're going to keep operating or not, and that there's going to be this kind of corruption showing up that has to be prosecuted each time separately? Yes, and my evidence of it is Exelon is involved in Illinois in a very similar scandal that was announced just two weeks ago. It involved larger sums of money, and Illinois, I haven't followed it real closely, but it alleges state legislator bribery. The, I think both houses of the Illinois legislature are Democrats, and the governor's a Democrat, and the FBI, of course, is involved in that too. But I think to answer your question, yep. I think we're seeing something that in a way is sadly inevitable, and that is that the economics absolutely don't work for nuclear. They just don't. They won't. They can't. I mean, solar and wind in particular and energy conservation, industrial scale, are forever becoming cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and almost in an infinite way continue to do so. Whereas, of course, 
new nuclear technology is going to be horribly expensive. And reactors like Davis-Bessey and Perry are aged. They are in their breakdown cycle like an old car, and you suddenly find that many years into it, you need a new transmission. You no longer need to just change the fluids. And that's the problem with Perry and, and, and Davis-Bessey and, and is very typical of nuclear power, the light water reactor fleet, which is largely in this age range. So yes, if you're going to be a troglodyte utility, the only way you're going to keep the dinosaurs alive is by pushing it onto the taxpayer ratepayer dole. And one of the really annoying aspects of the bailout for Ohio, which I think was also true in Illinois, is that they basically are, the plants are required to be kept essentially on standby when not used. And that essentially, even though there is other margin, not in Ohio so much, but in Illinois, there's new wind, new gas turbine merchant plants coming online in Ohio and Illinois, even though the margin, the, the backup availability of electricity at a lower cost is cheap, is, is significant and deep, redundancy and depth, they still are required by the law to be kept in a standby mode, which means everybody shows up for work 40 hours a week. Even though you may not even be generating electricity to put into the grid at Davis-Bessey, you show up, manage the plant, stand by. So, yeah, that's going to be the pattern. And it's aided by the dark money system of finance. There's an interesting article in the local paper here about the dark money thing. And the states have the right to require disclosures and require, I hate the word transparency, but require visibility and campaign finance reportage of money that's funneled through dark vehicles like Generation Now, but they don't. And why don't they? Because their state legislators are uh, unwilling to do that sort of thing because of the politics and the money, the enormous amounts of money coursing their way through the electoral system. This is a big illustration of how one large corporation was able to shovel unimaginable amounts of cash through one point in the General Assembly and take over the General Assembly. This is robber barons on steroids in the 21st century. In a moment, we'll continue our interview with Terry Lodge and learn about a new scheme by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission to make it legal to secretly dump unremediated, unprotected nuclear waste just about anywhere. But first... Are you outraged yet? Mad as hell and not going to take it anymore? You should be. You'll be hearing even more about the hugely moneyed interests playing loose and fast with the safety of nuclear reactors and radioactive materials. As this week's guest says, we're facing robber barons in the 21st century. And it's no exaggeration to say that these moneyed interests have the potential to do irrevocable damage to just about everything that's currently alive. Now, have you heard about any of this beyond the headlines in any mainstream media organization? Probably not. And that's why you need Nuclear Hot Seat. We look at the nuclear aspect of our world every week, in depth, and especially now, 
with the coronavirus wrecking havoc on safety of reactors, weapons, and, as you'll be hearing more of, radioactive waste. Nuclear Hot Seat is the only place you can count on to report the ongoing, evolving nuclear truth that the industry would rather we not hear about, let alone understand. But to keep this show running requires time, energy, effort, all of which I'm willing to give, and funding, for which I need help. COVID has hit us as hard as anyone, which makes your help to keep the show going more important than ever. That's why the time would be right now to support us with a donation. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the big red Donate button to help us with a donation of any size. And that same red button is now where you can send us a monthly $5, the same as a cup of coffee and a nice tip here in the U.S. Please do what you can now to ensure that Nuclear Hot Seat keeps going. And know that however much you can help, I am deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Now back to this week's interview with environmental and trial attorney Terry Lodge. There's a proposal being floated to allow very low-level radioactive waste to be dumped just about anywhere. What's the background in this and how is it playing out? This is an example of a very disturbing trend going on right now. 2020 is going to be remembered for some pretty big things, starting with the pandemic, but before that, uh, international events involving Iran. Since that time, of course, the welcome renewal of the new civil rights movement in America, the Black Lives Matter movement. But against the backdrop, especially of the pandemic, which has caused terrible economic turmoil, as you know, and uh, terrible preoccupations with people who can't make rent, who've lost their job, who've lost their health insurance by the millions, levels of unemployment matching the uh, levels of the Great Depression. In 2020, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and Department of Energy are maximizing the low level of public attention to rush many things along the path to fruition. With that backdrop, very low level radioactive waste is an ancient scam of the NRC and occasionally the Department of Energy. We have been able to trace at least back to 1962, the old Atomic Energy Agency, which was effectively the combination of the NRC and DOE, was labeling radioactive waste. They were calling it low-level radioactive waste, not because necessarily it's lightly radioactive or mildly radioactive, but because it wasn't high-level radioactive waste, which is defined in the Atomic Energy Act as being spent fuel. So everything else is low-level radioactive waste. So understand that fundamental principle, because VLLW is not a term that appears in the Atomic Energy Act, but variously, it's the same radioactive garbage, which is everything from uniforms and lightly irradiated metallic parts or scrub brushes or you know things from nuclear power plants that have become irradiated, buckets, that kind of thing, up to the reactor vessel, which is low-level radioactive waste. So what has happened is, beginning in the early 60s, they started campaigning for, this comes on the tail end of the peaceful atom, the too cheap to meter nonsense of the 50s and early 60s. When they're peddling nuclear power as a commercial venture, 
it's just going to be so blasted cheap that it'll almost be free. It'll almost be uh, an inconvenience to bill for it. The same sort of mentality was saying that it's also safe and good for you and we have medical isotopes and a little bit of radiation doesn't hurt anything or anybody. Uh, we all know sort of this drift of things. The lie of it. Yes, the lie of it. So it's been called below regulatory concern. It's been called beneficial reusable material. In a comment letter that I was involved in drafting, we came up with about 30 different names over the last 60 years for radioactive garbage that isn't spent fuel. What's going on is this. The latest attempt, and in my mind, the most brilliant, is VLLW. In 1992, the Below Regulatory Concern campaign, if you will, which was being pushed very heavily by the NRC, foundered on a congressional vote because it was a regulatory change and Congress has the right to reject a rulemaking, and they did. It was a pretty narrow vote, but it was a smarting defeat for the NRC. So now, nearly 30 years later, there have been a couple of attempts since then. DOE has attempted to, they basically have what they call uh, mildly radioactive metals uh, generated in dismantling their experimental reactors and whatnot that they think are safe enough to simply sell to the commercial scrap market. And periodically they've attempted to do that. And, and so far we think we have defeated them. But the latest attempt, very interesting for its I think, frankly, evil, the way it, it has been set up. It is that there are four licensed low-level radioactive waste facilities, a.k.a. dumps, in the United States. There's one in West Texas, WCS. There's one in Clive, Utah, Energy Solutions. There's one at Hanford, and I'm, I might be the Idaho Falls. Anyway, there are four facilities, and they're not perfect. They don't do what I think should be done with rather dangerous radioactive material, but they have vaults, they have monitoring wells, they do have, at least for a few hundred years out, express plans for monitoring and observation. The same material under a proposed, it's not a proposed rule, it's a proposed anti-rule. It's a deregulation. The NRC is proposing that anyone who may or may not own a landfill that presents an authoritative analysis written by a health physicist or someone else with understanding of radiation, perhaps an engineer, but they present an application that includes an analysis of the types of radioactive material they expect to receive, will receive an exemption from the low-level radioactive waste regulations. So it turns everything on its head. There are 2,600 landfills in the country. And incidentally, the NRC isn't even requiring this exemption to be granted to a landfill operator. It's anybody who has, I don't know, 20 acres. Anybody that has some acreage. And, and understand, as ridiculous as this is, they are calling this simply a reinterpretation, and by doing so, they are attempting to put it in a category that cannot be attacked, challenged in court, which isn't going to work if I have anything to do with it. So far, I'm hearing that there are other environmental attorneys who 
will also be possibly involved if this actually goes through. But in uh, late winter of this year, the NRC proposed this regulatory change. They have had, because of the pandemic, a couple of online public comment kinds of sessions. But it's not a rule, understand? It's just a reinterpretation. It's just a little bit of semantic sleight of hand. Precisely, which they're famous for. They just granted an extension of about 90 days, but the deadline for filing comments was July 20th. I've been working with Diane DeRigo at Nuclear Information Resource Service, and she successfully circulated and, and obtained more than 90 signatures of grassroots organizations ranging from sort of longtime allies at anti-nuke type to other broader environmental organizations, peace and justice and anti-war, environmental justice groups, that kind of thing. So we are beating the drum and going to use the additional 90-day extension to try to get more sign-ons for our comment letter, but uh, also just to make a great deal of noise and reach into other non-traditional opponents. Like there's a national organization, I don't know the name of it, that's basically the union, if you will, of landfill operating private and public entities. We have been in touch, the president of that organization, they're very concerned because conventional landfills are already pretty stressed and there will be problems if private landfill operators go into the radioactive waste business. Let me point out, when you apply for an exemption and the NRC grants it, that's it. There's no requirement to maintain any, I mean any, records. You do not have to maintain records of the origination of the waste, i.e. most of it is expected to come from commercial nuclear power plants that are being dismantled and decommissioned. There's no requirement, no zero requirement for you to maintain as a landfill operator to keep any data. You don't have to specially line or perform any physical change or modification to your dump. And incidentally, the application process, since it's not a license, not a license being granted under the Atomic Energy Act, it is an exemption. There's no publicity. So your town dump, sly old fellow that runs it, rounds up an application, gets an exemption, and you don't know about it. You maybe hear a few rumors. He doesn't even have to confirm to you what he's doing. It's a proprietary business secret, after all, unless it's a public landfill. So you file a FOIA request. Good luck with that. I don't mean to be flip and sarcastic. It is astonishing. And it's sort of weird, as some NRC proceedings I've been in before. I mean, the people pushing this are always like sort of low and middle echelon staff. You know, they're true believers and they... They take their jobs very seriously. And, I, you know, uh, to some extent, I, I will give most of them credit for sort of being sincere and well-intentioned, I guess. But this is just so astonishing. This and, is completely over the line. I mean, what, yes. comes, what comes to mind for me is North St. Louis, where the waste from Malincrod right, ended yes. up being yes. in Coldwater Creek and then be, been dumped in the landfill there, and the right. problems that have ensued from that, and right. the difficulty that those people have had even pushing for any kind of a cleanup on it. Yes. And that would be the scenario repeated again and again in all of these. You said that there were over 2,600 yes. sites that would then be eligible for just kind of saying, okay, give me your, your, your leftover nuclear waste. It's fine. We'll just... Right 
stick it in the ground here. There's no way of knowing how many of the 2,600 are really going to convert. But let me tell you where the precedent already has been set. States like West Virginia and Pennsylvania, New York, Ohio, presently accept radioactive fracking waste at commercial, regular, town dump type landfills. That's radium laced. It's, of course, so-called naturally occurring isotopes, but it is certainly roughly comparable to many types of human-produced isotopic waste, uh, in other words, nuclear power industry and weapons waste. So it's already been routinized where you have the scenario of conventional landfills, which are engineered to last, to contain for 60 years. They are expected to perhaps, with post-closure monitoring, keep the toxins, everything contaminated that they hold, secure for possibly another 60 years. So a total 120 years. In nuclear terms, that's nothing. That's a blink. Exactly. And they are also, lots of them build east of the Mississippi in very water-rich groundwater kinds of areas, geological uh, questionable stability and all that. Also, use of liners and some well monitors are not set up for nuclear, not set up for stuff that, as you say, might last a little bit longer than 120 years, like 100,000 times that. So the problem doesn't just end with making this change. It's a situation where somebody can cash in big, especially if they're 50 miles or 30 miles or 20 miles down the road from Davis-Bessey in 10 years when it's being dismantled. So the problem is you're going to have unmarked loads going to secret or at least non-public, what are de facto radioactive waste dumps, and good luck with your groundwater. And workers, there's, incidentally, there's no requirements for safety equipment, no requirements for training. Just put a no after every question you have. Do they have to have portal monitors at the uh, gates of the landfill? No. Do they have to maintain any records of any readings they get? No. If they do, is that okay? Yeah. Are they going to? Not necessarily. The publicly owned ones might because the public might get wind of it and angrily, you know, at least demand a few protections, some records and all that, but it just isn't going to work. I know in Ohio, I've I've done a lot of anti-fracking litigation, and the privately owned refuse dumps that are accepting fracking waste charge something like relatively radioactive fracking waste were disposed of at Clive, Utah, or WCS in Texas, it would cost roughly a hundred times what is charged to dump it at a landfill near Canton, Ohio. So, you know, we're talking low-level waste dumps charge more because they do more. It may not be enough, but they do more. And there is some consciousness of the fact that this is dangerous stuff. And, you know, when you've got it running through the water supply for thousands of years, you just increase the odds of poisoning the biosphere. Everyone and everything. Yeah. One last statistic that, that troubles me is commercial landfills. So the state of the art, the best landfills being built right now with plastic liners and all this other stuff, about 10% of them, of them, the current contemporary best, best in the West, leak within a decade of opening. By 60 years, when they close... 60 to 70% are leaking already. So you don't have 120 years. Don't have 60 years. 
Terry, as I said at the beginning, there's a lot that's hitting the fan right now. And from your explanation, it's very upsetting and it has the potential to not only paint us into a corner, but throw the paint all over our feet and there's no way we can get out of it. Yeah. So at this point, what is going to be most helpful that listeners to Nuclear Hot Seat, which include a lot of motivated people, Mm -hmm. What can we do to support you and your work and whatever can be done to turn this around? There are happily some marvelous activists in the, the very low level waste anti-campaign. And the fact that it has national implications, I think, is a big deal. One thing that people can do actually is approach local solid waste disposal regulatory people the president of the Association of Landfill Operators, I think is in Kansas City and is actually an executive, a governmental executive in a regional solid waste disposal district. This was sort of the new late 90s, early 21st century sort of legislative change that was going on in many states to conform with some of the expectations of changing uh, waste disposal law at the US EPA. And so I understand that the current solid waste disposal philosophies to move to zero generation of waste so that landfills are controversial. People never want one coming in next to their neighborhood. And the whole idea is they're sort of being sold to us on the concept that we are diverting more by recycling, we're diverting more by less industrial waste being generated at front, all that kind of stuff. And things like this are screwing that economic model and that philosophical model terribly. You're talking about making them sacrifice zones in a, a really gruesome way. So people need to find and identify even the governmental officials who oversee the privately run kinds of dumps in their regions, in their areas. Where and how could they find this information? You can contact refuse companies, you know, the people that you're paying fees to, and ask where they get their licensure, what kind of governmental oversight they have, you can contact state environmental protection agencies, Department of Environmental, DEP, or, you know, there's different names for it. You can also contact city governments are increasingly in the habit of overseeing contract firms coming into town for waste and rubbish disposal and find out who they contract with and you can talk to your city officials about including terms in the contracts that the dump owner will never accept radioactive material. So you go to your city government. So to have a paragraph or a statement, something right. in the city contract that prevents them from ever yes. accepting radioactive waste. Right. And or providing proof of any that they already have. There's ways you can tweak and finesse and all that. But it's a big deal. And I think a lot of local government electeds, as well as administrative people, will be pretty upset. I just keep thinking Toledo's on the western edge of Lake Erie, and this is a very water-rich area, and all of our landfills are sitting on very shallow aquifers. I mean, we're talking millennia, and we're talking really bad carcinogens. How does that not resonate with public decision makers? It seems to me that the local approach in this controversy is a good one. As you might imagine, I don't think that the Ohio General Assembly, for instance, is going to intervene in any health-protective, public-interested way. They're too compromised by large corporate money and all that. So you may 
be looking at a situation where the only and best place you should invest your time and your approaches is with local people, local government. Terry, if people wish to be in touch with you or learn any more of this information and to sign on to these letters that are being sent, where can they go and how can they do this? They can go to a couple of places. One of them is the Nuclear Information Resource Service, N-I-R-S, nears.org, which I believe has posted the actual sign-on very prominently on their opening page. Diane DeRigo there is overseeing this and doing quite a job. If they want to contact me directly, I have a simple-to-remember email address. It's My last name is L-O-D-G-E, Lodge. Lodge Law, one word, L-O-D-G-E-L-A-W, at yahoo.com. Send me a note, and I will deluge you with more stuff than you care to read. Terry, it's always more informative listening to you than I have any suspicion of when I go into (laughs) these interviews. And it's welcome, because the depth and the breadth of your understanding is without precedent for me. So I thank you for all the work that you're doing. I thank you for the way you're going and the way you're leading us in this and for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Ohio-based attorney Terry Lodge. You can sign on to the NEARS letter at nirslikesam.org, nears.org, and we will have a link to it up on our website, nuclearhotseat.com under this episode number 475. And believe it or not, Terry had still more to share, this time about what he labels a dangerous hoax behind plans to sell U.S. nuclear technology to Saudi Arabia. We will have that portion of our interview in two weeks. Activists, activists, shout out, shout out, shout out. A reminder that on August 6 and August 9, the anniversaries of the U.S. dropping the atomic bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the coalition group HiroshimaNagasaki75.org will be providing commemorative live stream programming for both days. There will be talks by Hibaksha, atomic bomb survivors, downwinders, poetry and music, and informational panels lasting anywhere from five minutes to a full hour in length. Each day's programming will be completely different. I am honored to have been included on two pieces of the programming, both of them set to air on August 9. In the first, Mary Olson of GenderAndRadiation.org and I have a talk about, of all things, what provides us with hope for change in the nuclear landscape. And at 7.55 p.m., I'm not certain what time zone that's going to be in, but that's when I have five minutes to introduce you to one of the unsung all-time villains of the nuclear age, William L. Lawrence, who is science writer for the New York Times. I'll explain how his unethical journalistic decisions of 1945 manufactured consent in the public for all things nuclear that followed. It's a sneak preview of what I've been learning in my research for a play on Lawrence called Atomic Bill and the Payment Due. We'll have links to the live stream up as soon as they are available, as well as a link to their program guide, and on next week's show, we'll bring you up to date on what's being offered. 
as we mourn those who died from the direct bomb attack and its aftermath, as well as the deadly creation process it took to make them. And at the same time, we rededicate ourselves to creating a future without nuclear weapons or reactors. And in a separate item, I need to have your help in making up for an oops. There was sent around a link to a nuclear industry handout called Marketing During COVID-19, a guide for nuclear marketers. I had it in my queue for downloading, but when I tried to access the material, it had already been removed and the link broken. So if any of you managed to get a copy of that report and could send it along to me, I would really appreciate it. Use the email info at nuclearhotseat.com. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, July 28, 2020. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, Beyond Nuclear International, the International Campaign for the Abolition of Nuclear Weapons, or ICANN, msn.com, cleveland.com, thebulletin.org, utilitydive.com, fitznews.com, wistv.com, palmbeachpost.com, tri-cityherald.com, vcstar.com, stltoday.com, San Clemente Green, thewaddle.com, coreabizwire.com, and the ever-co-opted Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Thanks to Bruce Brinkman for help with some audio grabs. And thanks to all of you for listening, with a big shout-out to Nuclear Hot Seat listeners and followers around the world, in 123 countries on six continents and counting. If you haven't already done so, go to our Nuclear Hot Seat Facebook page to like it, share it, and respond to a post. Also, if you would like to get your Nuclear Hot Seat dose every week by email, go to NuclearHotSeat.com. Scroll down to the yellow insert, that little box there. Just put in your first name and an email address. We will send you one email a week. We don't bug you. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2020, Libby Halevi and Heartistry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed, as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that when it comes to nuclear, not only what you don't know can hurt you, chances are it already has. There you go. That is your nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.